Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andreas Show here on Thursday, January 9th. And as always, thanks so much for tuning in to today's program. As mentioned here with weather, we are uh, going to be seeing some snow here over the next couple of days. We're looking at flurries here in Kamloops for most of the day today. And then starting tomorrow, that snow is a coming. The forecast is calling for flurries today, periods of snow tomorrow, snow on Saturday, and periods of snow again on Sunday before the temperature drops to minus 20 on on Sunday night. So we have seen a few snowy days here in the last little while, and it looks like we're going to get at least one more of those little snowfalls before we open up to that deep freeze and then uh, walk right into it. So it's coming. So just be ready here. Come the end of the weekend, it's going to be cold, cold, cold. But hey, we live here in Canada, so we should all be prepared for that, especially when we're talking about being here in mid-January. I got a good show lined up for you here today to kick off the back half of the program. I'm going to be speaking with the Canadian Center for policy alternatives about the issue of fracking. The CCPA has put out a new report calling for the government to immediately ban the controversial practice of fracking at sites close to BC Hydro's two existing Peace River dams, as well as at the site Sea Dam Construction Project until a full public inquiry determines whether a comprehensive ban is warranted. Those sites are, of course, up near uh, Fort St. John here. So I will be joined by policy analyst Ben Parfit at around the 35-minute mark of the hour to discuss this report and why this call is being made at this time. For those who do need a reminder, fracking, of course, is the process of injecting liquid at high pressure into something like subterranean rock in order to force open existing holes and extract oil or gas. I'm sure you all know that, but it never hurts to get a reminder of exactly what fracking is and why people are so opposed to the practice. Also on today's show, the city of Kamloops is continuing to prepare the public for the April 4th referendum on the proposed new Performing Arts Center. The city is, of course, looking to borrow up to $45 million for that project, and there are a lot of questions that come as a result of that request. Well, there is an easy way now to go about getting some of those questions answered. A new webpage has been launched, which is basically an ask me anything when it comes to building an art center. So a bunch of questions on this website could include things like why does the city always borrow money for every large project? If we borrow the $45 million for the Performing Arts Center, can we afford other things? What is the total cost invested to date on the proposed site by the city? What happens after the referendum? This is just a small sample of the some 70 questions that are available on this website. So if uh, any of those questions are something that you are wondering, or maybe there's something else that, uh, you know, you are uh, wondering about when it comes to a performing arts center project, well, the answers to those questions are likely available on this new webpage. So, like I said, some 70 questions have been asked and answered on this site, so it is kind of a great one-stop shop to have all your inquiries answered when it comes to this project. And I will be speaking with the city's community services manager about the need for this website and just how useful it has been to date. So that will be coming up at around the 50-minute mark of today's show, something along those lines. And coming up next, I'll be discussing the issue of electronic devices at the border. What exactly are your rights when you're crossing into the border? Whether you're going across the states, coming back into Canada, what rights do you have when it comes to your electronic devices? Well, the federal privacy watchdog says that Canada's border agency violated the law by carrying out invasive searches of personal digital devices, and in one case, viewing a traveler's social media and online banking information. So Privacy Commissioner Daniel Tarion looked into six complaints against the Canada Border Service Agency concerning the examination of devices such as cell phones 
and tablets. So six complaints. It doesn't sound like very many cases, but yet, even with the small number, there were quite a few concerning practices that were brought to light as a result of this investigation. So I'll be chatting more about this subject with the president of the BC Freedom of Information and Privacy Association. So if you're crossing the border here in the near future, whether, like I said, you're going south or coming north, well, you may want to stick around because there is some good information to be aware of when it comes to what rights you have when it comes to your electronic devices and what people are allowed to look at, what sort of information they're allowed to gather uh, when going through those devices. You know, it might sound like, uh, uh, you know, not a big deal to some people, but there's a lot of privacy, private information that comes on those devices that, uh, you know, you can learn a lot about someone from just their cell phones. So it's definitely something that, uh, you know, is a bit concerning if people are not, if border agents are not, uh, you know, following the lay of the law when it comes to, uh, you know, how they're allowed to go about performing these searches and what information they're actually allowed to look up. And then, of course, uh, you know, with that, what are the rights of border agents as well? I mean, when we're talking about what rights you have as someone who is being searched, well, what rights does the Sergi have in this case as well? So I will uh, be getting into all of that with the president of the BC Freedom of Information and Privacy Association, Mike Larson. So stick around for that chat because, like I said, I think there's some good information for any travelers to be aware of. So that'll be coming up after this. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks so much for tuning in here today. Uh, an investigation by the federal privacy watchdog has found that Canada's border agency violated the law when it carried out invasive searches of personal digital devices. In one particular case, a traveler's social media and online banking information were actually looked at. Uh, so border officers cannot routinely examine such devices and can only proceed in the event a number of indicators suggest that a person's devices would be worth going through and that would involve things like like illegal activities. Here now to talk about sort of what your rights are when it comes to uh, searches of your digital devices and, and what the rights are when crossing the border. It is uh, Mike Larson. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show here. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the president of the BC Freedom of Information and Privacy Association. So, so Mike, just tell me a little bit about what people's rights are when crossing the border. I mean, when it comes to your electronic devices, there's a lot of personal information on there um, and, and mm -hmm. probably not something that we want people digging through, uh, at least not on a really, you know, regular basis or, or it shouldn't be that easy, I guess, for people to access some of this information. So uh, just when mm -hmm. it comes to the rights of your digital device and crossing a border, uh, what, what should people be aware of? Sure. Uh, so it, this is, it's a very important question, as you know. Uh, it's a bit of a complex one, too, because uh, the rules can be different whether you are citizen versus non-citizen, uh, and also whether you're crossing uh, out of Canada uh, or whether you're coming into Canada, right? If you're dealing, mm -hmm. for example, with U.S. Customs versus Canada Border Services. But I'll, I'll give you the, the, the take on it if you're um, in Canada and, and you're leaving and you're subject to inspection by CBSA, or if you're coming back into Canada and subject to inspection. So you do have rights. Uh, they don't have the authority, the legal authority, to conduct a warrantless, suspicionless, suspicionless, um, just comprehensive search of your device. But uh, they have far more power to search devices than, let's say, police have in a, in a general kind of stop on a on a roadside. Right. Um, so they can request if they if there are indicators that they believe uh, indicate that you uh, may be involved in criminal activity, you may be involved in smuggling. They have powers under the customs. Act uh, to search any 
goods coming into the country, and this includes, and the courts have decided, this includes uh, things like uh, phones. So they can conduct uh, a search. They can ask you to uh, provide a password, which would open up a device. They can conduct a, a cursory search of that device to see if there's anything that confirms uh, or relates to suspicions or any indicators that they've found. Um, what they are not supposed to do, though, is to um, access any of the data or applications on your device that are not stored on the device, but rather are cloud or, or uh, remote storage. So, for example, um, a search of a device, like a, a tablet or a, a phone at the border, um, looking at uh, files, looking at uh, anything you may have downloaded, that may be uh, um, completely reasonable and, and, and legally permissible. Going beyond that and logging into and browsing Browsing through your online accounts, your, your social media accounts, looking at your online banking records. Um, all of this is possible through your phone. This is why we use our phones, right? But mm -hmm. uh, that's not actually something that's on the phone itself. That's remote access, and that's not supposed to happen. So in, in general, you um, have some rights uh, when it comes to your privacy and digital devices at the border, uh, but radically reduced from what you would normally have. Uh, and there are um, <clears throat> a lot of powers involving inspection because it's being done under the authority of customs as opposed to a criminal law. Okay, so there's uh, quite a bit to unpack there. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of difficult for, for, you know, if myself, say, if my phone were to be taken and, and mm -hmm. I provided a password for a, a border agent to get into my phone, I mean, I'm probably not standing over their shoulder watching everything that they're, they're doing on that device, right? So right. this would be hard for something or for someone, uh, you know, just a general member of the public to actually, you know, even, even try to stand up for themselves. If someone's doing that, I mean, it's hard for you to know probably. Absolutely. And you know, I mean, you're nervous when this kind of stuff is happening too, right? It's, it's challenging to assert your rights and to assert your authority and to feel free to speak up and advocate if you are, you know, subject to an inspection at a border, you've been pulled aside and there are serious questions arising around whether you might be let into the country or these kinds of things. So, um, yeah, and, and this is one of the, uh, the findings of the Privacy Commissioner's investigation into these cases in which Canada Border Services Agency was in serious violation of the law. They weren't properly documenting the why or the what of what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So they had some legal grounds to conduct searches. Uh, they're supposed to uh, uh, follow certain procedures. They didn't follow those procedures. One, one really simple example of this is when they're inspecting, this is border services, when they're inspecting a digital device at a border, they're supposed to have it in airline mode. Or, so this is meaning that your phone would not be or your device would not be connected to the internet. It would not be sending and receiving and, uh, um, you know, accessing right. all of your accounts. Uh, and, and in some instances, the privacy commissioner found, and they only studied six cases, right? So mm -hmm. a very, very small fraction of cases that arose from complaints, but they found that in, in some of these cases, airplane mode was not switched on. Uh, in other cases, there, there wasn't proper documentation of the grounds for the search, uh, the reasons or the indicators, uh, or indeed exactly what was looked at and, and, and how, so, or who it was shared with and why it was retained or not retained. So what this points to, I think, is that there's a real lack of clarity within the Canada Border Services Agency in terms of what their procedures are supposed to be. And that's really compounded when the public has a lot of questions about what their rights are at the border. It creates a very ambiguous experience. And I guess, what, what can people do to protect themselves further? Is there anything that people can do? I know, like, in, in a couple of these cases, like, we were talking about, um, you know, online banking information that was accessed. Um, you know, in some apps, I know, like, like my Facebook, for example, I'm not going to enter a password every time I want to open my Facebook because I'm on it probably frequently enough that I don't want to do mm -hmm. that. But something like my bank, I don't necessarily check it or, or you know, all, every hour of every day like I would some of my forms of social media. So I do have a password on that app that is on my phone. I guess, is that uh, something that you might recommend for 
for people is to have additional passwords to get into some of this information in order to, um, you know, prevent uh, someone from easily being able to access this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I, w- I would recommend that. I, I, I know that most people keep most of their accounts and applications logged in on a persistent basis, exactly as you've noted, because we're, we have so many different accounts, right? You don't want to enter a new password every time. But, you know, you don't cross the border all the time. And it, it is actually important to take some additional steps to protect your privacy in that context. And one of the things I would do would be to disconnect any active logins to applications um, that are uh, cloud-based or remote. So that if there's a search of your phone, it is literally just a search of your phone. It's not a search of your phone and then all the various sites that it might uh, uh, connect to. Um, That's one step you can take. Another step you can take is actually thinking seriously about which digital devices you want to bring across borders. and the kinds of information on those devices. Now, this comes up quite often when people have other people's personal information or sensitive information on their devices. So, for example, there's been a huge conversation in the legal community in Canada about lawyers who are traveling across the border who have sensitive solicitor-client information on their devices. What can they do to safeguard that information? And many people have recommended actually using secure, privacy-protective cloud applications to store files rather than having them downloaded to a device uh, so that in the event of a search, uh, people aren't accessing that kind of you know sensitive personal information so those are some steps that you can take i think there's there's a a, a more comprehensive step too though which is that we we do need to update our laws on this mm-hmm. um what we're experiencing right now is uh, a really classic case of old school laws in a digital era so the authorities that cbsa uses to search the, the devices for example come under the customs act and they grant the customs officials which is border services the authority to conduct inspections of goods and of people uh, coming into the country, which, you know, makes sense from a customs perspective. Uh, But what they've done is they've treated a digital device as a good. So similar to if you were bringing a, let's say if you bought some shoes across the border and you're bringing the shoes in, they wanted to inspect the shoes, the shoes would be considered a good. Well, you know, a phone can be considered a good, but it's so much more than that, right? It's a real portal into our lives. We, we live our lives through our devices uh, to, to an increasing extent. Uh, and we haven't updated our laws to reflect the fact that, look, the phone may be a good, but it's not just that. It's much more than that. It's a, uh, deeply implicated in our personal information. And so so we really do need to modernize our laws and clarify them so that organizations like Border Services are dealing with uh, an updated sense of what our expectations and rights are. Yeah, and from what I understand, too, the government says it's intending to reintroduce a bill that died last year, um, or at last year's election, sorry, call to create an independent review body for uh, border agency services. So I would assume that if they were able to uh, go about creating this independent review body, that would probably have a significant uh, impact on on not only what border agents agents themselves are allowed to do, but actually being trained properly to uh, to do that work, right? I, I, would, would you interpret it the same way if, if this were to go through? It really depends on the uh, uh, on the nature of the organization they're going to create, uh, but but generally, yeah, I think so. This is CBSA is the only organization in Canada that has the comprehensive power that it does in terms of peace officer, customs officials, in many ways more powers than police. Uh, that has no independent oversight, so they are subject to a lot of rules and policies, but they're ultimately policing themselves in terms of compliance. And this has been flagged going back to the creation of the organization as, as something that really needs changing. Uh, you need to have that external oversight to make sure that policies are being followed. In this case, simply that uh, that things are being documented properly. I mean, you can't even really confirm if searches are taking place according to the rules and regulations if uh, there isn't a proper process of documenting what's happening when. So, yeah, having an external oversight body is, is really important, clarifying um, the policies and updating our laws as well.
Yeah, that's a very good point, and, and I think in one of these cases too, it was talking about uh, the, um, the the information relating to the examination of uh, the complainants' digital devices was destroyed in two cases, uh, despite the fact that the Privacy Act says that they should be kept for at least two years. So, not even aware, I guess, of some of the filing requirements here um, when it comes to these searches. I guess just one more thing, Mike, before I let you go. Um, sort of, we've talked about what the rights are of people, but I guess what are the rights of border agents when it comes to this? I mean, what kind of activity? are they looking for that would allow them to be able to do these kinds of invasive searches? Is there anything specifically that people, you know, uh, what body language you might give, give off to a border sure. agent that might entail him to, to go through with something like this? You know, it's a great question, uh, and one of the things the Privacy Commissioner has recommended is that uh, the Border Services Agency post uh, its policies for this uh, online for public accessibility so people can actually determine whether they uh, were subject to reasonable or unreasonable inspection. Um, CBSA has not published a, a comprehensive overview of indicators just yet, so we're kind of going on um, anecdotal or case-based evidence. Uh, certainly they have authorities under Customs Act and under the the um, Immigration Refugee Protection Act. So, for example, if they believe that somebody has falsified documentation about their identity, if they believe, if they have reason to believe uh, that somebody might be involved in, in human trafficking or, or smuggling of some kind, um, then these are all grounds for searches. Uh, if people are involved in criminal activity. Um, uh, excessive, you know, nervousness and agitation at a border. Uh, but ultimately, there's no authoritative list that we can point to. And some of the best work that's been done on this in, in Canada has actually been done by the uh, BC Civil Liberties Association, the BCCLA. And they've published this really fantastic handbook that people can access online. It's free about your rights at the border. And it talks a bit about some of the indicators that are used based on BCCLA's uh, research. Um, and, and so things like where you're coming from, if you're, if you're single or not single, um, you know, the, the kind of, uh, of devices, the number of devices you have, all of these things have been correlated with an increased likelihood of being searched. Um, but there is no specific list that I can point to. Interesting. Well, I'll have to try to get in touch with them and, and uh, get a little more information on that as well. So thanks so much for doing this, Mike. I always appreciate you taking the time to speak with me, and you always are uh, very informative when it comes to these kinds of subjects. So thanks so much for uh, speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Awesome. That's Mike Larson, the president of the BC Freedom of Information and Privacy Association. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking a little bit more about the controversial practice of fracking and just uh, what the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives is calling for here in the next little while uh, up at a few centres when it comes to the BC Hydro Dams near Fort St. John. So we'll be talking more about that after this. <laughs> Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Thursday, January 9th. The BC office of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives is calling for an immediate ban on the controversial practice of fracking at sites close to BC Hydro's two existing Peace River dams, as well as at the site C Dam construction project until a full public inquiry determines whether a comprehensive ban is warranted. Policy analyst Ben Parfit collected documents through the Freedom of Information Act that show BC Hydro's Peace Canyon Dam could fail in the aftermath of an earthquake triggered by fracking operations. And over the past decade, BC Hydro officials have warned numerous people in the provincial government that fracking near its dams could have grave consequences, including the worst possible outcome, an outright dam failure. Here to discuss this is policy analyst Ben Parfit. Ben, thanks so much for coming on the show here. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. So, Ben, let's just start by talking about sort of why this issue came to your attention here at uh, the CCPA. I mean, what, what is it about fracking in general, and I guess what just triggered you to start making these FOI requests to get more information on these specific areas? Well, um, my interest in this really goes back about three years when I first uh, made an FOI uh, request of BC Hydro. Um, and I did so at that time because there was evidence of mounting uh, earthquakes uh, in northeast BC, and I speculated that BC Hydro uh, might have concerns about that, and indeed they did. Um, but the most recent information, I think, really underscores just how concerned BC Hydro is. So um, I received uh, that FOI material um, uh, in the middle of last year uh, and have been looking at it quite closely. And what it shows very clearly is mounting concern within BC, BC Hydro about the operation of a disposal well um, where fluids were being injected underground um, at a well site only about 3.3 kilometers away from the Peace Canyon Dam, which is the second dam on the Peace River system. And the information in the FOI package uh, shows that BC Hydro officials knew from the moment the Peace Canyon Dam was built in the 1970s that it was built over uh, relatively weak uh, shale rock. And as a result of the dam's known foundational problems, as BC Hydro describes it, they had effectively downgraded the seismic tolerance of that dam. And what that meant was that they had very serious concerns about the operation of this disposal well so close to the dam. They transmitted those concerns to the Provincial uh, Oil and Gas Commission. And even the commission itself said that the numbers that BC Hydro had provided were, quote, of high concern. Um, ultimately, that disposal well operation was shut down because of those concerns, but the company that was operating the uh, well actually um, contested uh, the Oil and Gas Commission's decision to shut it down. And ultimately, what the commission ended up doing was issuing the company a new conditional uh, permit that would allow the company to resume operations if certain conditions were met. But even with that decision, BC Hydro very clearly uh, had grave reservations, and the FOI record that I've obtained shows that their senior legal counsel in um, December of 2018 was telling the Oil and Gas Commission unequivocally that BC Hydro did not want any fracking operations or any disposal well operations anywhere near its Peace Canyon Dam or its other Peace River dams. The really interesting thing about this uh, FOI package is that BC Hydro said that earthquakes of a magnitude in the 4 to 4.5 range could damage the Peace Canyon Dam. And the significance of that is that we now know that the largest earthquake ever induced by a fracking operation occurred in the state of Oklahoma in 2011 and triggered a 5.7 magnitude earthquake, which releases 53 times the energy of a magnitude 4.5. So the scientific record on this is very clear. Fracking can uh, trigger significant earthquakes. In the case of the Oklahoma earthquake, that earthquake was felt in 17 U.S. states. It buckled a highway in three places. It damaged homes, and it injured people. 
So BC Hydro is acutely aware that earthquakes of that magnitude can be produced, and it's even in the FOI record. Um, references to the Oklahoma event are, are clearly noted by uh, BC Hydro in its discussions with the Oil and Gas Commission. You know, uh, one of the things that I, I guess really drew my attention to when, when looking through some of this information was uh, former BC Hydro construction manager Dave Unger, I believe you worked with on this report, um, said he, quote-unquote, felt events while working at the Peace Canyon Dam in 2007. Uh, so those came on while natural gas drilling operations were being performed. I mean, this is 12 years ago. You would think if, if uh, more work has been done in this kind of area over the past uh, you know decade or so, that it would just weaken the, the, the infrastructure below um, these kinds of dams and these, uh, you know, giant structures. So uh, when looking at, at, you know, someone's firsthand experience 12 years ago about concerns that something like this could happen, I guess, you know, does that just kind of up the level of intensity when, when looking at just how big of a possibility this actually is that, uh, you know, if fracking operations could trigger some sort of seismic event? Uh, absolutely. Um, the interesting thing about Mr. Unger's experiences, so he, he was, uh, you know, he was in charge of major const- construction upgrades at the Peace Canyon and WAC Bennett Dams in 2007. He was operating at a very senior level in charge of uh, significant uh, retrofit projects, you know, in the $350 million range. So this was a person who had been hired to, to take on very significant work uh, at these dams. He was operating in a senior position, and he appears to have been the first person uh, to report to higher-ups at BC Hydro that there were um, felt events or tremors that were occurring at Peace Canyon. Now, the interesting thing about Mr. Unger's experiences was that in 2007, the natural gas industry um, was only a shadow of its its current um, uh, self. Uh, so at that time, fracking as we understand it today wasn't really happening. Um, so in the FOI record that I have, it's very clear that um, uh, Mr. Unger transmitted concerns to uh, senior officials at BC Hydro um, that uh, in the years following um, um, him flagging concerns, um, we saw a dramatic escalation in the number of emails that were being generated internally within BC Hydro, where where BC Hydro dam safety officials were starting to become more and more concerned about encroaching natural gas industry operations in proximity to the dam, um, uh, precisely because fracking um, uh, in its current form was starting to take off. In other words, we were starting to see more operations where more fluid was being pushed underground at greater force. And what we now know um, from the FOI record, it, it, it is very very clear that in recent years there has been both an increase in the number of earthquakes that are occurring in northeast BC, but very importantly in the um, magnitude of those earthquakes. So, so we're seeing um, earthquakes increasing in number and uh, intensity. That I think is a very, very important um, uh, thing to provide context to the experiences that Mr. Unger had. We also know now that in November of 2018, a 4.5 magnitude earthquake, which is the second most um, uh, powerful earthquake induced by fracking operations in northeast British Columbia, uh, uh, 
occurred about 20 kilometers to the south of the Peace Camp or, or, or of the Site C Dam uh, project, and and that earthquake was so strong that it resulted in a jolt. Uh, that species hydro's words at the site C construction project and the immediate evacuation of workers from the site um, uh, following uh, which there was an inspection of the site and work uh, resumed the next day. The interesting thing is that the company that triggered that um, earthquake, uh, Canadian Natural Resources, um, suspended its its uh, fluid pumping operations and was told by the Oil and Gas Commission that it could not resume fracking uh, until it received a written permission to do so um, at the location that it was operating at. And we now know that in October, just this past October, the Oil and Gas Commission told CNRL that it could resume fracking operations uh, at the site. We also know from the FOI record that there have been ongoing meetings between the Oil and Gas Commission and BC Hydro regarding uh, workers at the Site C site uh, and proposed fracking operations in um, the nearby vicinity of the dam. And why that is significant is that uh, the Oil and Gas Commission received a report in June of last year in which the commission was told by two independent geologists that it would take very uh, little by way of increases in the pressure at which water was being injected underground in fracking operations to activate what, what the geologists called critically stressed faults. So we know that there are faults in proximity to these dams. We know that those faults can be activated by fracking uh, activities. And we know that a significant event occurred uh, at the Site C site in November of 2018. The other thing I think that is very important to note is that uh, Provincial Energy Minister Michelle Mungal in February of last year received a report uh, from a scientific panel and one of the panel's findings was that it is a complete scientific unknown or uncertainty about how large an earthquake could one day be triggered by fracking activities. So I think, you know, when you consider that finding uh, and allowing operations to proceed, fracking operations or disposal well operations to proceed nearby these dams, um, it's, it's a very uh, risky um, decision mm -hmm. to, to allow those kinds of activities to proceed, knowing that there is a possibility that an earthquake of an unknown magnitude uh, could one day be triggered. Uh, ben, I'm running out of time here, but I will get you out of here on this because there's a, there's a lot of information. I'm sure we could talk for a lot longer about this subject, but um, you know, you are at, at the CCPA. You're making a call to see some some form uh, or sorry, a ban of fracking activities within 10 kilometers of these sites, um, and then more even uh, stronger restrictions within another 15 kilometers from there. Um, and BC Hydro has also made some concern about uh, fracking activity in the area and just what the possibilities are. With, you know, multiple groups kind of sending their voice behind this message, I guess, what, what is your confidence level that the government will listen and, and take some of these concerns into consideration at this time? 
Well, um, I mean, very clearly, uh, the, the current government, like the government before it, um, appears to be wedded to the idea of um, uh, increasing natural gas production, which means increased fracking. My hope um, is that uh, releasing this information will at least um, kickstart, um, uh, you know, another conversation about what is acceptable and not acceptable in this area in terms of risk. I would note that in the materials released by BC Hydro is an email in which the former director of dam safety for BC Hydro likened what lies ahead in terms of fracking in the region to a quote-unquote carpet bombing campaign. Those were his words. Um, and a carpet bombing campaign that could last an estimated 50 years. And I think in light of, of you know, the documents that BC Hydro was compelled to release under the FOI, I, I really feel it compels the provincial government to be explaining to the public why it considers it to be an acceptable risk to allow these activities to occur near some of the most critically important uh, infrastructure in the province. Infrastructure that, if it failed, um, would be devastating in terms of um, uh, uh, cost of, of, of human life. Um, and I, you know, I just hope that this information uh, serves to get that conversation going. Well, Ben, I'll definitely be paying attention to see how, uh, you know, what kind of response is, is received from uh, from this report, and, and I'll be interested to know sort of what the actions are taken, um, you know, beyond this after the request is made for for these kinds of bans and, and limited restrictions to to activity in the area just what what the response will be so i'll be keeping my eye on this but uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today uh, you know your report is now out there as of this morning for people to view so hopefully people will take some time to read it i think it's uh, it's a good read so thanks so much for your time i really appreciate it thank you so much awesome that was uh, ben parfit policy analyst with the canadian center for policy alternatives coming up after the break i'll be talking performing arts center here in kamloops and how you can go about learning more about the project with just a couple of clicks. So stay tuned to find out more. The voice of your community. Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Thursday. We're now less than three months away from a vote on whether the city of Kamloops should move ahead with trying to borrow $45 million to build a new performing arts center. A referendum will take place on Saturday, April 4th, and as that date approaches, I am sure there are many out there who have some questions about the facility and about the process. Well, the city has made a new online tool, of, tool available to try and answer some of those questions, and here to speak now is Byron McCorkle, Community Services Director with the City of of Kamloops. Byron, thanks so much for taking the time. Good morning. So let me just start by asking, I guess, why was it felt a site like this was needed? I mean, I'm guessing there were a lot of inquiries that were being made to the city that, uh, you know, it was probably easier to put everything in one central location than to continue to answer emails and phone calls. Well, that's basically it. We uh, are constantly challenged with how do you get the information out? How do you make sure that everyone's uh, getting a consistent response? And so uh, really it was uh, felt that this was probably the easiest way to do it. Uh, let people uh, share in the information from uh, a question that they may have, somebody else may have asked, and, and there's the answer. And it, it lives there uh, for the three months going into the referendum. 
Now, when people are making inquiries, I mean, was it felt like there might be a lot of misinformation that people were coming forward with, like wondering, you know, I've heard about, uh, you know, such and such a process, and is that indeed true? I mean, have you been hearing some misin misinformed comments from people, and, and they're sort of looking to find out what the actual correct answer is? Well, I think it's true of anything, whether it's the Performing Arts Center or, uh, uh, you know, road project. At the end of the day, from uh, from the community perspective, a lot of things are happening. There's a lot of conversations going on. Where do you go to get the correct information? And uh, and so we uh, have that role of making sure that there is uh, uh, unfettered, unbiased. Here's the facts, and uh, and move from there. Uh, and we we have a duty to put that out and uh, make it accessible. So that's that's really what the website's about. Yeah, definitely important to make sure people know the facts and have the correct information if they are planning to go and vote on a project. I mean, you should know what exactly it is you are voting on. Now, there are some uh, 70 questions on this website now. All of those do have answers to them at this point. I'm just curious, you know, have, have you heard uh, uh, any concern about maybe if 70 questions that are there now, if there are some still uh, unanswered questions or are people allowed to uh, maybe submit and write in new questions that aren't currently answered on this website? Um, you know, just just how does that work? Is there still opportunity for people to ask uh, more questions here? Oh, for sure. The, the site is live, and uh, and basically it's monitored by our staff. So when one comes in, it uh, it is put through to whoever is best uh, to answer it, and uh, then the response goes out. And as I say, the the website then is open. Uh, people can can tune into it and uh, see if uh, their concern or their uh, their thought has been contained already in existing questions, or if it's not, or they want to get even more clarity from from a question that is answered. There. There, uh, they can ask another one, and we're very happy to put out uh, the information and make sure that everyone gets what they need uh, to be able to make a decision. Yeah, and we got, like I was saying earlier, just a little bit less now than, than three full months before this referendum vote takes place. So lots of time for people to, to jump on and, and read some of these questions and get some questions that they might have outstanding answered. Um, I guess uh, just a, probably a big hope, I would assume, from the city, and, and the main purpose of this is just to make sure people are getting the correct information and are knowing exactly what they are voting on so I'm assuming you're pretty hopeful that people will take the time to uh, read some of these responses especially if they have any uh, questions that are already out there that have been answered that they take the time to read them so that they are informed before heading to the polls. Well, that's the basis of, uh, you know, it may sound uh, a little out there, but basically that's what democracy is, is it's it's the people coming together to make decisions. And so we're asking them in, in this instance, does it make sense for us to uh, borrow some money to uh, provide a facility uh, and some infrastructure in our community? And and so people need to know why we're, we're suggesting that, why how that's supported, um, what the impacts would be to them uh, at their doorstep if they're attacked taxpayer uh, and, uh, and and ultimately what this venue would provide for our community as a whole and and obviously uh, being the recreation guy I have uh, worked with all the agencies that are involved and I've worked with all the uh, participants uh, in the arts community and and we are uh, happy to put forward that uh, that messaging on their behalf and support the fact that this conversation is something that our community needs and and uh, and it's whether or not this uh, proposal, as far as the borrowing, is makes sense to the taxpayer. And and I think what we've got in front of them from a business case and from a borrowing strategy, I think there's something that's compelling, and the community needs to, to take note of it, 
to look at it and by all means we want to see as much or as many people as we possibly can come and vote on it because that's ultimately what uh, helps us make decisions. Awesome, Byron. Well, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to come on and speak with me. Uh, I really appreciate it. And like uh, like I said, there's a lot of uh, questions that people do have, so hopefully they take the time to log on to this website and get those questions answered. That website, of course, is letstalk.camloops.ca slash KCA. So there you go. Thanks so much, Byron. Really appreciate your time. You betcha. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Have a great rest of your Thursday, Byron. And, of course, that goes for all of you listening out there as well. Thank you so much for tuning in. So that wraps things up for me here today. Thank all my guests for joining me, and a thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here on Friday morning at 9.